All right, pull out your message notes. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Lord willing, uh, we're going to be starting the Gospel of John in the next week or so, trying to finalize some details there before we jump into that. We're going to be in the Gospel of John for two years. So once we start, (laughs) we're now going to end for a while. So if you got a sophomore in high school, they're going to be graduating by the time we're done. All right. This morning... um, We're going to talk about loving God and loving people. And so Matthew chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 34, all the way down. We're going to read all the way down to verse 40, 34 to 40. Uh, Follow along as, as, as I read. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You know what? Jesus is the expert on life and love. Is he not? He tells us what the grand purpose of life is ultimately all about. Life is ultimately about loving the creator. It's about knowing the creator, the God of the Bible, the God who spoke and everything came into existence, the God who created you in his image. It is about knowing him, it is about loving him, but it's also about loving other people. You know, life is not about the successes and the accomplishments. And life's not about you making a name for yourself, right? It's not about having the nicest toys or, or having the most friends on social media or, or building that fat retirement portfolio so you can like retire and just coast and enjoy the goodies of life. It's not about finding your ultimate significance in other things outside of your relationship with Jesus. Jesus says the grand purpose of life is knowing God, loving God with every fiber of your being and loving others as yourself. This passage in Matthew 22 is called the great commandment. And the great commandment is love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and then love your neighbor as, that's the key word, as yourself. We were designed by God to be in relationship with God. He created all things, and he wants us to have this intimate walk, this intimate relationship with him. But he also wants us to have this, these horizontal relationships with other people. You know, Rick Warren said, a great commitment to the great commandment will grow a great church, and I think he's right. We got to be committed as believers to loving God and then loving other people. The greatest measurement of authentic Christianity is how we love God and how we love one another. Let me set the stage of Matthew chapter 22. Let me set the stage of the great commandment. Earlier that day, the Sadducees, they were called the Sadducees because they were sad to see. All right. 
Um, they were the theological, I should have had Richard on the drums doing that. Come on, buddy. Come on, man. Come on, man. They were the theological liberals of the day. And they came to Jesus with this silly question about the resurrection. And, and they came not seeking an answer. They came to make fun of. They came to mock. They came to test Jesus. And so these political and religious liberals, you know, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife, right? They didn't believe in angels. Their aim was to discredit Jesus. You see this all throughout the Gospels. The religious people who were far away from God, kind of ironic, right? The religious people were far away from God. The sinners were closer to God than the religious people. Don't be religious, I tell people, you know, when I encounter people and people ask me, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm always like, I work with people. I work with people, right? No, I don't, I don't lie, right? I, I tell them I'm a pastor. I try not to tell them up front, right, because it's automatic, like, boom. They put up a wall. They don't want to talk to me. It's just weird, you know? But, like, when I do engage with people and they find out that I'm a pastor, I'm really quick to say, yeah, but I'm not religious. And they kind of give me that weird look, like, you're a pastor, but you're not religious. No, I actually hate religion. Religion drives people away from God. Religion puts like heavy burdens on people. Jesus came to take the burdens off people. Jesus came to set people free from bondage and oppression and sin and guilt and shame. That's what the gospel does. It breaks you free from what the world wants to put on you. Okay, all right, so there, I'm chasing something. Let me go back to what I was saying. What was I saying? Yes, they were trying to discredit him. They were always trying to discredit him, always trying to trap him, right? They were always trying to get the, the crowds to unfriend him and, and unfollow him, right? Their question backfired. Jesus' answer was so profound. Those who were within listening distance of his words were completely astonished at his teaching. Jesus silenced the Sadducees, but that didn't keep their religious rivals, the Pharisees, a very strict sect of Judaism to kind of jump into the fray, right? Jump into the debate. So there's this lawyer, a lawyer by, by the way, is just an expert trained in Jewish religious law, comes to Jesus with another question to test him. And so I can see these devout very smug, self-righteous Pharisees. You know, they got the tassels. They, they've got, you know, they, they've got the, all the accolades. They've got the resume. They're, they're snickering with pride. And, and they're saying amongst themselves, you know, he can silence the Sadducees, but he won't silence us. The lawyer steps up to the plate and says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And I can almost imagine, I can, I, I can picture it now, the Pharisees were kind of huddled up. They're thinking, oh, we got him. Oh, boy, we got him now. He's not going to be able to answer this question. Mark's gospel says, which commandment is the most important of all? And that's a great question. That's a great question. What's the most important commandment according to God's word? Here's what Jesus does. He goes beyond the scope of the question, and he quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes Leviticus. He takes 613 Jewish laws, and he boils it down to two. That's what he did. He took all of the Bible, which is all about him, every book, every chapter, every word. Everything's about him. He's the hero of the story. 
He's the hero of the redemptive narrative. It is all pointing to him. He's the main character. He's the hero. He's the savior. It's all about Jesus. If, if, like, if, if, if you don't get anything from the message today, the Bible is about Jesus. Your salvation is about Jesus. It's the gospel of grace. It's Jesus' grace. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. He left the throne room of glory and came to, to this earth to offer grace. Somehow we've got it so mixed up that as believers, it's about us. It's not about you. You're a recipient. You're a, a sinner saved by the grace of God. It is his glory. It is he's mighty. He's holy. He's worthy. He's the one doing the work in our lives. But somehow we've just turned Christianity. It's just all about us. No, it's all about him. It's all about his work and what he's doing in our lives. So Jesus takes 613 commandments. He boils it down to two. So basically, he gives us the, the top, his top two list to live by. Every time I think about like a top list, I think of David Letterman. Remember, he always had his top ten list, right? Jesus has a top two. And his top two trumps it all. Jesus said, you want to know which commandment is the most important of all? It's the 11th commandment. Essentially, that's what he says. I say the 11th commandment because John 13, 34 says, Jesus told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So these religious zealots were, they were very well versed in the law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and all of these are encapsulated in this new commandment, which Jesus said is really not new. He said, this is not a new commandment. You've had this from the beginning. But he's like, it's about loving God, loving people. All right, here's point number one. Jot this down if you're taking notes. Hope you are. Number one, God made you to love him. So simple, so profound. What is the greatest, most important thing that you can do in this life? What is the greatest, most important thing you can do in this life? According to Jesus, the answer is very simple. Love God completely. Love him completely, right? Love him totally. You know, love him with all of your being. Think about this for a moment. If God commands us to love him, he's gonna give us the capacity to love him. If the creator wants us to worship him. He's seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth with passion, but according to truth, doctrine. Doctrine is not a dirty word. Doctrine is good. Theology is good. We worship God with passion, with emotion, but we worship God according to truth, according to how he's revealed himself to us in the pages of scripture. If God commands us to love him, he's gonna give us the capacity to love him. God will not command us to do something that we cannot do. So every time when you come across a command, God gives you the strength. He empowers you to live that out in your life. He's not heaping commandments on you that you cannot do, that you cannot fulfill. He's, he makes it possible because the Spirit of God indwells within you, lives within you. You were empowered to live this life. But you know what? It's a choice. This, this love is a choice. Do we choose to love God? Do we choose not to love God? Sometimes we choose right. Sometimes we choose wrong. You know, the Bible says that when God created the Garden of Eden, 
He created man and woman. He created them with the free will so that they could express love to him and to one another. It's impossible to truly love unless you have a choice. Love is beautiful when there's a a decision behind the act of love. If it's forced love, it's not love. But if there's a decision, if, if there's a will there to surrender, to love, it's like those little dolls at, at Toys R Us. You know, if you got kids, you understand, you buy these little dolls when your little girls are little, right? And you give them a doll, right? And, and you pull back the string. And wh- what does that doll say? I love you, mommy. Or maybe it says, you're a bad mommy. You know? I don't know. No, normally it's like positive, uplifting things, right? There's no free will there. There's no freedom, right? That's not genuine love. Love is a real value to God. And you you can't have real love without the freedom to choose to really love or not. So there has to be freedom. So God made you with a, he gave you free will so that you can freely love him. It's a choice. And you were created, you were made to love him. He commands us to love him. And then he gives us the capacity to love him. Here's point number two. Love is a choice, not a feeling. Love is a choice, not a feeling. I mean, we we know that, right? Anyone who's been married any X amount of years, right? We we got anyone that's been married over 30 years. Raise your hand. Over 30 years. Okay, 30. All right, here we go. Over, over, there we go. I'm not done yet. Over 40 years. Raise your hand. Okay, we got to keep your hands raised. Keep your hands raised. Over 45. Over 45. All right, here we go. We got two couples. How long have you guys been married, Bob? You better know, buddy. You better know. You better know. How many? 57. Steve and Joyce, how many? 49. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. So if you're new today, that's very rare. I may have have done that once in 13 years, okay? Listen, if I asked you guys... Do you stay married because of the warm, fuzzy feelings you have every day? Or do you choose to love your spouse? If you're smart, you say, I got the warm, fuzzy feelings and I choose, and I do both. I do both, right? Right? (laughs) You better hold on to both. No, it's a choice. It's a choice, right? You choose to love. You choose to stay married. Everything in life is a choice. And the choices you make shape who you are. The choices you make determine the path you're on and your future. When it comes to your marriage, right? It's a choice to be faithful. You know, the marriage, Paul said, marriage is a mystery. He's right, it is a mystery, amen? But, okay, that, that didn't, okay, I... <laughs> Okay, I tried to make that as a joke. No one went with it. Okay, it is a mystery. Um, it, it's, it's probably more of a mystery, honestly, for the women to understand the man because we're a mystery. Anyways, um, but listen, it, it points to a greater, a, a greater mystery, right? And, that, and it's a beautiful portrait. Marriage is a portrait of the gospel, right? Christ is to the church what the husband is to the wife. Unconditional love, servant leadership, Right? sacrificial love. The wife is to the husband what the church is to Christ. There's respect. There is 
submissiveness. There's following spiritual leadership. There's, there's, it's beautiful in the context of marriage. When you, when you define it biblically, it's beautiful. Marriage is a pointer to the gospel. You stay married because you want to keep covenant. You want, you want to display the gospel and God's faithfulness in your marriage, in your life. You don't stay married because you have these warm, fuzzy feelings 24-7. It's, just, it's, not, it's not happening, right? There are, there are times where you want maybe to rip the head off of your spouse, right? Or you go to bed angry, which you probably shouldn't, but they're just, let's just be real, right? Marriage is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. You're going to get married. I mean, God's going to. It's heavenly sandpaper, man. God's going to refine you and change you and mold you. Can I get it? Amen. All right. There's a few of you didn't want to say amen because your spouse is right next to you. All right, point number three. Love is demonstrated in action. Love is demonstrated in action. Love is not a feeling. It's a choice. And it's, it's demonstrated in the deeds and the actions, right, of life. In 1990, there was a panel of the, the windscreen, a panel of the windscreen on British Airways Flight 5390 fell out, the panel fell out at 17,000 feet, causing the cockpit to decompress and its captain to be sucked halfway out of the aircraft. The flight attendant, Nigel Ogden, who just happened to be entering the cockpit, held on to the captain for more than 20 minutes, true story, as the co-pilot tried an emergency landing, most of the crew thought the pilot was already dead, but Ogden continued to hold on. There was also the fear that if he did let go, the body might collide with the plane's engine, wing, or stabilizer, creating more havoc. All he knew for sure was that the pilot was slipping further and further out the window, and his head was repeatedly slamming against the fuselage. After 20 minutes of flying with a broken window, the plane landed safely at Southampton Airport. Ogden suffered frostbite on his face and damaged one of his eyes. He also dislocated his shoulder. The pilot miraculously survived with frostbite and multiple fractures on his arms and hands. That story, true story, I looked it up because everything you look up on the internet is true, okay? I looked it up. It's on the internet. It's true. And don't come. Don't send me an email. It's not true. No, it's true. In my books, it's true. So listen, true story. It's an amazing story about the power of community. But for me, when I read that story, I think about the power of community. But I think about Jesus holding on to us. He held on to us. And he held on to us. And he died on that cross. And he was willing to go through the, the agony and the pain and the horror. The, the horrifying experience of crucifixion for us. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? Who's the joy? You're the joy. I'm the joy. We're the joy. Who for the joy set before him? What allowed Christ to keep enduring the cross, the horrors of the cross? It was you. You were on his heart. You were on his mind. And that's why he endured. He endured the cross for you. That's powerful. Love is demonstrated in action. 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love. Well, how do we know love? By this we know love. How do we know love? That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The cross 
is the perfect picture of God's love. Jesus modeled what it means to love people. He loved people, not in word only. He spoke powerful words of love, but he loved people with, with action. He found tax collectors and prostitutes, and he threw them into the sphere of his love. He touched the untouchable. He loved the unlovable. He forgave the unforgivable. He welcomed the, the undesirable, and he saves the unsavable. He demonstrated his love for us by laying his life down for us. I want you to soak this truth in for this very moment. I want you to write it down, soak it in. I want you to think about it this week. God will never love you more than he does right now. He will never love you more than he does right now. He will never love you less than he does right now. Now just stop and think about that. That, that Romans 6, that shouldn't give you a license to sin, right? Paul said, may it never be, right? We shouldn't use grace as a license to sin, but we should use that powerful truth to just think about the greatness of the gospel. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing I can do. There's, there's no sin that I could ever commit to make God love me less. God doesn't love you based on what you do, based on like who you are, your actions. He loves you based on who he is based on his character and his promises. Matthew 22, 37 to 38. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. I want you to um, circle the word all. It's mentioned three times in those two verses, right? Jesus is saying, I want you to love me with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. What he's saying is, I don't want to share space with anyone else. I want to be on the throne, right? I want to be CEO of your life. I want to call the shots. I want to be, the, I want to be that coach in your life. I want to, I, I'm the savior. I'm the God of your life, right? I, I don't want to share space with anyone else. I want 100%, not 50, not 20, not 10. I want 100. He says, I want you to love me, with, love God with all of your heart, to love God with your whole being, it's, he's talking about your feelings and your thoughts and your decisions. The Bible, you know, the Hebrews thought about heart differently. In our culture, we think, you know, Valentine's Day, roses and chocolates, and it's just these warm, fuzzy feelings. But the heart to the Hebrews, it was the center of your emotions. It was the center of your intellect. It was the center of your volition. Like your decisions where your decisions come from. So the heart represents the totality of who you are. Your mind, your, your, like how, your feelings, your thoughts, your decisions, the core of who you are. So God is saying, I want your entire life to be wrapped up in me. I want you to pursue me with all of your heart. So when you become a Christ follower, God moves in. He takes up residency in your life and it's forever. I love what Max Lucado said. He said, you've got to admit, some of our hearts are trashed out. Let any riffraff knock on the door and we throw it open. Anger shows up, we let it in. Revenge needs a place to stay, so we have him pull up a chair. Pity wants to have a party, so we show him the kitchen. Lust rings the bell and we change the sheets on the bed. Don't we know how to say no? Many don't. For most of us, thought management is, well, unthought of. 
We think much about time management, weight management, personal management, even scalp management. But what about thought management? Shouldn't we be as concerned about managing our thoughts as we are managing anything else? Jesus was like a trained soldier at the gate of a city. He stood watch over his mind. He stubbornly guarded the gateway of his heart. If he did, shouldn't we? Jesus wants all of your heart. But Max Lucado's right. Sometimes our hearts are trashed out, completely trashed out, because we're sharing space, right? We're, we're, we're giving the enemy a foothold, a stronghold into our lives. And we're allowing the enemy to come in and, and wreak havoc. And God's like, listen, I want, I want supremacy over the entire domain of your life. He says, love me with all of your soul. That the core is to love God passionately, right? Are you as passionate about Jesus as when you first got saved? I want you to go back to the moment, the, the moment, the first moment you encountered Christ, you heard the gospel, and it changed your life. How passionate were you? How excited were you about telling other people about Christ? When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus. I think sometimes in our lives, the, the, the holy becomes humdrum. The greatest story ever told has become the greatest story never told. And as believers, we gotta, we gotta take up the gospel, right? As soldiers, man, we gotta take up the gospel, go into the war and share this good news with people who are lost and, and hurting. He says, love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Love God with your thoughts. How are you loving God with, with, your, with your thoughts? Are you thinking about God? Are you thinking, like Philippians 4 talks about, thinking on things that are pure and holy and right and righteous? Love God with your strength. That means love God with your abilities. Love God with your, with your energy. Love God with your skill sets, right? I mean, every person in this room, you have a spiritual gift. Beyond the spiritual gift, you have talents. You have skill sets. God has equipped you, right? He has given you all of these abilities and he wants you to use it for the building up of the body of Christ. Are you in the game? Are you using those skill sets for the building up of the church, right? Are you investing? Are you, are you using those talents? Matthew 22, 39 to 40, it says this. He, goes, he moves on from loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and then he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here's point four. God made you to love other people. God made you to love other people. You see, the first commandment makes the second commandment doable. Loving God makes it possible for you to love other people. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. So God loves us in Christ. We respond to his love. We respond to the call of God upon our lives. He draws us to him, right? We experience his grace. We experience his love. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We taste and see God is good. His forgiveness is sweet. And then Romans 5 tells us that God pours his love into our hearts and then we take that love and we pour it into the lives of other people. So if you're like, Man, I, you know, I, I just don't really like other people. 
Well, maybe you need like an, an infilling of the love of God in your own heart. Maybe you need God to just, maybe you need a downpour. Maybe you need to be drenched with the love of God and experience that and, 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 and sit in that all over again and then take all of that love that God gives you and then pour it into the lives of other people. You cannot love people unless you have first loved God. I, I just don't think it's really possible to truly love biblically if you haven't experienced God's love first. You know, the Middle Ages theologian Bonaventure when asked, why don't people love God more? He replied, they don't know him better. They don't know him better. See, the more you know God, the more you're gonna love God. Here's point five. Jesus wants you to love real people, not ideal people. You know, God wants us to love real people. And, and real people are, are, you're a real person, I'm a real person. Every person in this room, we have struggles, we battle sin, there's hangups in our life. We're, we're fighting for hope. We're clinging to hope, right? We're, we're, um, we're pursuing God, like, for victory in our lives. You know, um, God wants us to love real people, not ideal people. And you're never going to come across ideal, perfect people. You know, I like to say the, the EGR people, the extra grace required, right? Those people. Um, and if you can't figure out who those extra grace people are in your life, you might be that person. You need the extra grace, right? Um, God tells us we can, we can live our lives three ways. We can waste it, we can spend it, we can invest it. And that, this is the call that Jesus has upon our lives. Invest your life. Invest your life in other people, right? Make the rest of your life the best of your life. Life is not about accomplishments, achievements, acquisition. Life is about relationships. That's what it's about. It's about relationships. It's about forming friendships. It's about building bonds. It's about loving people, even when sometimes they don't love you back. You know, the American myth says, make a lot of money, retire, and just Enjoy your golden years. But nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it spell that out. That you just retire and you just coast and you take it easy. The Bible tells us the opposite. Now, retirement's not bad. Retirement's not a bad thing as long as you don't retire from serving God. That's my point. We should never retire from serving God. The idea that I'm going to make a lot of money, I'm going to retire, and I'm just going to be on a, on a cruise ship with a nice little drink with a little umbrella, and that's going to be a symbol of the rest of my life. You're wasting your life. God wants us to spend our lives for the gospel. Spend it for the sake of the gospel. Invest in other people, right? You know, there's a book called The Journey Worth Taking by Charles Drew. It actually put the, the quote in there. And he says this, he says, church is not an event. Church is not an event. It's not something you go to, right? It is people, people whom God calls us to love. What is more, it is in a very important sense an involuntary community of people. We don't choose our brothers and sisters, God does. And sometimes, oftentimes, those people are not terribly compatible with us. 
not the people we would choose to hang out with. But it is this very incompatibility that is so important for at least two reasons. First, learning to love the people I don't like is by far the best way to learn how to love. It's easy to love people I happen to like. Second, the church is supposed to be a sociological miracle, a demonstration that Jesus has died and risen to create a new humanity composed of all sorts of people. Let me read it to you. Okay, there's a quote. Let me give you the Bible. Ephesians 2, 11, 18 says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, okay, non-Jews, in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, circumcision being Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, come on, amen, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now listen. Just what Charles Drew said. This is an involuntary community. When you start going to a church, you say, this is where God's leading me. This is where I'm going to invest. This is where I'm going to serve. This is where I'm going to worship. This is where I'm going to give. This is where I'm going to invite my oikos to. You are joining a body of believers, and luckily you're joining a church that doesn't completely look look like you. This is what I love about the diversity of our church. We're so diverse in every way. It's an involuntary community. You don't choose it, God does. And this, it's just this beautiful incompatibility. You learn to love people that are not like you. I have had people tell me over the years, you know what, I just, literally, I've had people tell me, people who have been committed to our church for years, they walk up to me one day and they say, you know what, I just like don't, I just don't have friends at the church. I just don't, you know, I'm not really just, connected to those people and they decide to leave and I'm like how sad is that how like crazy is that the gospel because of Christ unites us Christ tore down the dividing wall so okay you're like an apple they're like an orange you know what? Let's have some mixed fruit up in here, right? Let's mix it all together. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, okay, you're an engineer. They're, you know, they do something different, you know, career-wise. You know, whatever, background, doesn't matter. Like, the gospel unites us. The gospel unites us, Christ, because he brought peace, right? We could be at peace with God because of him. He broke down the wall, There was Jew and Gentile, but he created one new man in place of two, and he reconciles us to God. That's the sociological miracle. When someone can come to a church and they look around, and the church doesn't look exactly like them, different shades of color, different church backgrounds, right? But we're all focused on the core essential doctrines of the faith, and we love one another, 
and we serve one another and we're living out the gospel and, and, and we're in it for the mission. We gather so that we can go be the church in this world that's hurting and lost. Those people who come in here, they're gonna be like, man, these people, they're the real deal. That's what it's about. It's about living out our faith. You know, people say, well, I, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. That smacks of arrogance to me. They're basically saying, you know what? I'm too good for the church. Theologically, that statement is so offensive to God. How can you say, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church? That's like someone looking at me saying, hey, Pastor Elijah, I like you, but man, your body sucks. You know? You, you got a little extra chub. You got to lose some weight, Pastor Elijah. Or you know what, Pastor Elijah? I like you, but I don't like your bride. I don't like Candace. She, you know, I don't like her. See ya. See ya. You know? I mean, how can you say you love Jesus, but you don't love the people, the church that Jesus died for? We should love what Jesus loves. We should be about the mission. That is the gospel. Loving one another. Living lives that, that are Honoring to Christ. Did you catch the staggering truth in verse 40? On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying everything hinges. Everything hinges on these two. Everything. Verse 39, the, the word as, that's a radical two-letter word. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's radical. How do you love yourself? You love yourself emotionally, right? Right? You nourish yourself emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physically. That's how you should love other people. Love people the way you care for yourself. Point number six, we're commanded to love God, but we will never be able to fathom God's love for us. We will never be able to fathom God's love for us. You have a heavenly father that loves you. There's a pastor, Kerry Shook, he wrote in his book, One Month to Live, he said, your problem is not that you don't love God enough. It is that you don't understand how much he loves you. If you could grasp just a little bit of how much God loves you, you'd surrender all areas of your life to him. God would have given up his son to come to this earth and die on the cross if you had been the only one on this earth. It doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how broken you are, right? God's grace is bigger than all your sins. He went to incredible lengths to show you how much he loves you. He sent his son, Jesus, to prove his great love for you. Jesus died so that you can live with him forever. He went to incredible lengths for you to know him. And so pursue him. Pursue him today if you don't know him. Let's pray.